some a lot of people consider a hero, and I want you to think of one characteristic that that person has. And when you get that one characteristic in your mind, I want you to raise your hand. I want to make sure we're all here. One characteristic. We're not going on until you all raise your hands. <laughs> Everyone got one in mind? Okay, now, just to make sure you're not lying, I want you to tell the person next to you what that one characteristic is. Okay? Right now. Go ahead. All right, you got one. I came up with a list of 10. Now, there's many more than this, but here's the 10, if I could have them up there. Courage, integrity, resolve, moral strength, willing to take a stand, conviction, strength, not accept the status quo, humility, and ability. Were any of those on your list? Raise your hand. Did we hit any? Okay, we hit some of you. All right. Um, How many of those traits describe Jesus? Probably all of them. But Jesus also had some traits we would not normally associate with heroism. In some ways, he was an unlikely hero. Emmett Till. Was Emmett Till a hero? 14-year-old black teenager visiting relatives in Money, Mississippi on August 24, 1955. When he reportedly flirted with a white cashier at a grocery store, four days later... Two white men kidnapped Hill, beat him, shot him in the head, and sunk him in the Tallahassee River. The men were tried for murder, but an all-white male jury acquitted them. Till's murder and the open gas casket funeral galvanized the emerging civil rights movement. Now, was Emmett Till a hero? I don't know if he had any of those traits on that list. And he probably would not be the prototype of when we think of heroes. We usually think of military heroes and strength and force and Superman and things like that. But God seems to enjoy using unlikely candidates for his work. Jesus chose 12 guys that really were not heroic in any way. They were pretty flawed. And then God chose Israel. And that would not have been my choice. And then he used people like Jacob and Joseph and Moses who were really not heroic. Most people in the Bible were not that special. In fact, the Bible seems to take pains to show how unheroic these people really were. And one of the most surprising, ironic aspects of God's plan, I believe, is the church, us. Sometimes I think God's church is God's sense of humor, The church, quite frankly, has fumbled the ball in a lot of ways. The church has not always been courageous or strong or humble, and not many people see the church as heroic. But God uses these imperfect ways to to carry out his, His perfect plan. Paul said we have this treasure in earthen vessels, this treasure in cracked pots. We are like diamonds in a paper sack, or the gospel is like pa- diamonds in a paper sack. Our text today is quoted more frequently in the New Testament than any other Old Testament passage. Last week, the question by Israel was, is God able, is God willing to lead us out of exile? In Isaiah 40, it's probably my favorite chapter in all the Bible, we get this picture of an amazing God in all His power and all His majesty, He's, His wisdom as the Creator, and God is asking His people, do you remember who I am? Do you realize just how big I am? Yes, I can, and I will deliver you. So last week was all about God's nature. No nation is over Him, no gods are above Him, no one can tell Him what to do. And he asked, do you not know? Have you not heard? You were raised in Sunday school. Don't you know all this? He is the almighty God. Today is God's methodology. How will this deliverance be accomplished? Last week was the hope of salvation. Today is the means. Isaiah 52, 13. See, my servant 
speaking of Jesus, will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told they will see and what they have not heard they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low self-esteem. Doesn't sound very heroic, does it? Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep have gone astray, each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Now, after last week, you would think that God would use his mighty power to deliver us, and he would do it in a way with guns blazing. I mean, he would send a powerful army or maybe set up a government or start maybe a social program, but he doesn't. He sends a guy. And not a very heroic looking guy. He looks like a loser. Here's one paraphrase of of a couple of these verses. The servant grew up before God, a scrawny seedling, a scrubby plant in a parched field. There was nothing attractive about him, nothing to cause us to take a second look. He was looked down on and passed over, a man who suffered, who knew pain firsthand. One look at him and people turned away. We looked down on him thought he was scum. Not impressive. 90-pound weakling. Now, Isaiah's name for this hero is servant. How many of you said servant for your characteristic of a hero? Obviously, this is talking about Jesus, but in some passages in Isaiah, the servant is also the nation of Israel. Uh, It's the community of God's people. So Jesus and Israel, they both had similar commissions to be God's servant, to display God's righteousness and holiness to the world, and to be a light to the nations. But there's also a third servant of the Lord, and that is us, the church. We are to be God's servant and to display God's holiness and be a light to the nation. So God uses three, I would consider, unlikely candidates for His purposes. A group of slaves, the Jews, you know the old saying, how odd of God to choose the Jews. And then he uses an obscure Galilean on the fringe uh, of civilization who wrote no books, was in no movies, held no position, and received capital punishment as a traitor. And then he uses the church, which has not always been up to snuff. Isaiah 53 is a description of Israel, Jesus, and the church. And God is calling us to be heroes, but in the eyes of the world, sometimes we're not going to look like it. So I want to give you some traits of this unlikely hero from this text. And the first one is pretty obvious. He is not good looking. His appearance is disfigured and marred. No beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Now in our culture, heroes are always good looking, aren't they? Handsome, beautiful. Through the years has been Cary Grant, Robert Redford, Tom Cruise. 
Brad Pitt, Logan Phillips, you know, some guys who just have it all, you know. And we get deluded into thinking that good looks is a virtue. And the imagery in this text is like, is like, take the ugliest person in your group, take the ugliest person in this room, and God pronounces, you're the one, you're my servant, you're the one I'm going to use. In your list of characteristics of heroes, did anyone say ugly? Probably not. If I were to ask you, what did Jesus look like, what would you say? Now, this is the common image of Jesus. We can get this picture up there. That's what I grew up with, the long, flowing hair, kind, gentle face, pretty tall. And I'm sure, you know, by that picture, I would tell he's, he's over six feet tall, right? A hero has to be tall and slim and American. You don't see many pictures of Jesus fat or short or bald. There's a good chance he wasn't five foot tall. One tradition dating back to the second century suggests that Jesus was a hunchback. In the Middle Ages, Christians widely believed that Jesus suffered from leprosy. Now, to us, that's just almost crazy. Was he not the perfect man, which we would think the perfect specimen of humanity? Well, you read Isaiah 53, no beauty, no majesty to attract us to him, nothing in appearance we should desire him. See, our glamorized representations of Jesus say more about us than about him. But the ugliness that this text about, talks about is not so much physical, it's his methods would be unattractive. This was not what a man of God was expected to do. This doesn't fit the image. He didn't have power, he died a criminal's death. Dying on a cross was repulsive to both Jew and Greek. Now back in verse 1, he asked, Who has believed our message to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, who would have seen the arm of God in this? Back in chapter 40, this amazing God who created this amazing universe with all this amazing power uses this method? Incredulous. There's no way the suffering on a cross can be God's plan. The Bible itself says that cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, hung on a cross. And was Jesus ugly? We don't know. But we do know the cross was ugly. And how about the church? Is the church good looking? Man, sometimes the church is behind the times, out of step, out of date. You know, there's hypocrites, and our ministry is not always glamorous. You know, and the sermons are, you know, and visiting nursing homes and mission work and cleaning up spit from a baby. That's just not appealing. The, in fact, the Bible says we are the aroma of death to the world. Uh, one paraphrase might be, we stink. And the irony is God uses the smell of death to give life, God uses unlikely candidates to, use, to do His will. Here's another trait. He does not appear to be strong. We would expect a hero to be strong, good fighter like Rocky, you know, think, something like that. We would expect that the answer to the problems of the world would come from a powerful leader, maybe a great philosopher. But no, we get a peasant living and dying in a wasteland like Palestine. Man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. The word carries the idea of sickly you know, just not healthy, always having to go to the doctor, no beauty, no wealth, no power, not very strong. Isaiah says we considered him stricken by God. God's punishing this guy. God's forsaken him. And this God-forsaken hero is just the opposite of what we would expect. And isn't the church sometimes a little bit sickly and sometimes powerless? And we don't have much political clout, and our image and reputation is not always so good and certainly not helped by the, by the media. And in the church, there are several people that kind of fit this description, just to, don't, don't appear to have much to offer. Missionaries, they give up their home. I mean, missionaries are always, you know, who are these people? They're giving up family and wealth and their homeland. Who would do that to serve the kingdom? I've also noticed very often the best evangelists in the church are those who don't always have the perfect life. 
The Lord's servant doesn't always appear to be strong and healthy. Here's the third thing. He's not popular. He's despised, rejected by humans. The word is ignored. They brush him aside. Our heroes tend to be popular. I mean, everyone knows who Peyton Manning is. Was Jesus popular? Yeah, until people found out what he was all about, his mission was about. Is the church popular? Even many church members, I think, don't think the church is all that great. And we hear all this talk about how Jesus is popular and the church is not. And I think I would amend that and say, yeah, people's perception of Jesus is popular, but the real Jesus is not popular. Not many people are standing in line to take up a cross and die. The cultural image of Jesus is popular. The Jesus who would not hurt a flea and the Jesus who makes us all feel better and and the Jesus who agrees with everything I believe. Yeah, that Jesus is popular, but the Jesus of the Bible, the servant, is not. So our relationship to the world is to be one of sacrifice and death, just like that was Jesus' relationship to the world. How many are signing up for that? He took our infirmities, carried our sorrows, pierced for our transgressions, crushed, he died for us, and his ministry becomes our ministry. Second Corinthians, Paul says, the sufferings of Christ flow over into our lives. Peter says, Christ's suffering is an example for us to follow. So we should expect to suffer if we follow Jesus Christ. And we are to die to our selfishness and die to getting our own way and die to our pride. How popular is that today? It's all about self-fulfillment, not self-denial. So you're not popular. God's servants in the world, for the most part, they're not famous. They're not highly regarded. Mark 10, Jesus said, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. That is God's way to be a hero. But too often, we're about self-gratification instead of self-denial. What have you sacrificed for Jesus? Where have you denied yourself? I was reading about a man who struggles with same-sex attraction. Now, he's celibate, and he's a Christian, and he has this attraction to men. He wishes he did not. And he, he just admits in his book, it's tough to control that attraction. He, he knows he cannot get married. He knows that he will be single. And that he knows because of that, he's not, self-fulfillment is not on the radar for him. He's going to suffer. But here's what he says. The thing that God has used most to make me more like Jesus is my experience of same-sex attraction. And he writes that one of the missteps in the church today is we think that suffering is to be avoided. And so he talks about how he denies himself for the sake of Jesus. And that self-denial and that suffering is what has made him more like Jesus. That's what, that's what Christ has used to teach him and to shape him. By the way, he's also a pastor. And some might wonder, well, why doesn't God change his orientation? God has the power. Why does God let people struggle? Why doesn't God heal your cancer? You know, he has the power to do that. You read Isaiah 40 and think, oh, this great God, all the things he can do. Why doesn't he mend our finances? Why doesn't he help our marriage? And could it be that he's using that struggle to shape you, form you, by allowing the struggle? Because we're called to deny ourselves. And maybe that's an area where God is... Helping you deny yourself. Now, on my list for heroes was strength and courage, among other things. And Jesus, when he calls us to die, certainly takes heroic courage and strength. In the 4th century, there was a monk who spent most of his life in a remote community of prayer in Asia, raising vegetables for this cloister that he was part of. 
And then one day this monk, his name was Telemachus, felt that the Lord wanted him to go to Rome, the capital of the world, biggest city in the world at that time. Telemachus had no idea why he should go there, and he was terrified at the thought. But as he prayed, God's directive became very clear to him, so he set out on the long journey on foot over dusty roads. Everything he owned was on his back. Why was he going? He didn't know. What would he find there? He had no idea. He'd never been there, but obediently he went. Telemachus arrived in Rome during a holiday festival. The Roman rulers kept the ghettos quiet in those days, get this, by providing free bread and special entertainment called circuses. That's how they kept the masses happy. At the time Telemachus arrived, the city was also bustling with excitement over the recent Roman victory over the Goths. In the midst of this jubilation and this commotion, the monk looked for clues as to why did God bring me to Rome. Perhaps he thought it is not sheer coincidence that I arrived at festival time. So Telemachus let the crowds guide him. He followed the people. And the stream of humanity soon led him to the Colosseum where the gladiator contests were to be staged. And he could hear the cries of the animals in their cages beneath the floor of the great arena and the clamor of the contestants preparing to do battle. There was an electricity in the air, kind of like a college football game, the anticipation. And the gladiators marched into the arena, saluted the emperor and shouted, We who are about to die salute thee. Telemachus shuddered. He had never heard of gladiator games before, but he had a premonition of awful violence. The crowd had come to cheer men who, for no reason other than amusement, would murder each other. Human lives offered for entertainment. And as the monk realized what was going to happen, he realized he could not just sit there and watch the savagery, but neither could he leave and just forget it. So he jumped up on the top of the perimeter of the wall and cried out, In the name of Christ, forbear, stop! The fighting began, of course. No one paid the slightest attention to this puny voice. So Telemachus pattered down the stone steps and leapt onto the sandy floor of the arena. It was kind of a comic scene, a scrawny man in a monk's habit, dashing back and forth between these muscular, armed athletes, trying to stop him. He was trying to stop them. And one gladiator sent him sprawling with a blow of his shield, directing him to get back to his seat, and the crowd roared. But Telemachus refused to stop. He rushed into the way of those who were trying to fight, shouting again, In the name of Christ, forbear! The crowd began to laugh, cheer him on. Perhaps he was part of the entertainment. But he started getting in the way of the gladiators and started hindering their game, so the crowd turned on him, and then they started crying for the monk's blood. Run him through, they screamed. And one of the gladiators raised his sword with a flash of steel, struck Telemachus, slashing down across his chest into his stomach, and the little monk gasped once more, in the name of Christ, forbear, and died. A strange thing then happened as the two gladiators in the crowd focused on the still form and the suddenly crimson sand, the arena grew quiet, and in the silence, someone way up at the top tier got up and walked out, and then someone else walked out, and then more and more, and eventually all over the arena, all the spectators started to leave until the huge stadium was empty. Now, there were other forces at work at this time in Rome, of course, but that innocent figure lying in the pool of blood crystallized the opposition, and that was the last gladiatorial contest in the Roman Colosseum. True story. Never again did men kill each other for crowds' entertainment in the Roman arena. Now, was Telemachus weak? Well, kind of, but I'd say he was pretty strong. 
Emmett Till, hero, Jesus Christ. Now, if you had your Bibles open, you may have noticed I did not read the last two verses. Here we go. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Philippians 2.9 says it this way, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. The final word is exaltation. The servant will be glorified. Philip Yancey is a journalist, and he's interviewed hundreds of people. And upon reflecting upon that, he says, we can divide people into roughly two groups. The first group are the stars, the NFL greats, baseball stars, music performers, famous authors, TV personalities, and like. He says, these are the ones that dominate the magazine covers and the talk shows, and we fawn over them, we copy the clothes they wear, the food they eat, the aerobic routines they follow, and the toothpaste they use. People pay big money to buy a lock of their hair. And yet in Yancey's experience, he says, these idols, these, these heroes of our culture are as miserable a group of people he's ever met. He said, most of them have trouble with relationships, broken marriages, and and such. Nearly all are hopelessly dependent on psychotherapy, tormented by incurable self-doubt, and these are our heroes. Maybe that's why so many Americans have troubled marriages and dependent on psychotherapy and tormented by self-doubt. Maybe we need a new set of heroes. Tell me who your heroes are and I'll tell you who you are. Second group, he's interviewed, it would be classified as servants, like Dr. Paul Brand, who probably most have not heard of, 20 years among lepers in rural India, gave up a lucrative career in the United States, or a group of health workers who left high-paying jobs to serve in the backwater town of Mississippi, or PhDs scattered throughout the jungles of South America translating the Bible into obscure languages. And Yancey said, you know, as I interviewed these people, I expected to respect them. I knew I would respect them, but I had another unexpected reaction to them. I actually envied them. Clearly, these were the favored people, the Mother Teresas, the David Livingston. These are the ones who've been graced by God. Yeah, they work for low pay, long hours, no applause, you know, wasting their talents and skills among the poor and the uneducated, but somehow in the process of losing their lives, they've they found a life. I think we need to revise our ideas about heroism. Heroic people are not necessarily the best looking or the strongest or the most popular or have the most ability. Heroic people are servants, taking meals to people when they get home from the hospital, funeral dinners, an elderly man takes care of his wife with Alzheimer's, service is hard, but it's divine. You want to be a hero? Try letting Jesus be the love of your life and letting his grace flow through you to serve others. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great. And he'll divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death. God, you sent Jesus. And yeah, you could have sent a mighty army, a mighty military figure. You could have sent political power. But you sent a servant and changed the course of history. And you've called us to be servants, heroic servants, sharing the really only good news that this world has. 
God, we have neighbors who need to see your servant Jesus living in us. We have family members who need to see that servant Jesus living in us. And I would just pray that we love our neighbors and love this world by serving them and by your, your son living through us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. I survey the